The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Hopefully it works. And we're live. Today is Thursday, July 22nd, 2021 at exactly 5 o'clock p.m. And we are joined by the eminent Mike Chase. Ben, the monologue is yours. You know, I want to start by raising an aviation to all, and notice that it's not scotch, to all the listeners of Rational Security over the last few years, so many of whom have had nice things to say on Twitter today about uh, Rational Security and uh, my uh, uh, co-conspirators in it. Um, it has been a great blast to do it uh, and getting together uh, for scotch and conversation every week uh, with Susan and Shane and Tamara. Not that I need to get together with Tamara, but, you know, it's you do. part of the gang, you know. Uh, it's been just one of the really fun things over the last few years. Uh, and so thank you to everybody who has listened and who has had nice things to say about it today. And fuck you to the people who've had nasty things to say about it. <laughs> um, there aren't very many, but, you know, a good solid fuck you to all of you. Um, uh, seven years ago, on July 17th, 2014, a young lawyer anonymously <laughs> looking back to the William French Smith era at the Justice Department. William French Smith was the attorney general early in the Reagan administration, known for having earnestly debated important issues with his special assistant, Ken Starr. Uh, back then, William French Smith and his team decided it was really important to know how many federal statutes there were. And they started uh, what the census folks would call an actual enumeration. They went one, two, three, four, and it got fucking boring. And so they gave up. And in 1982, that was the last time anybody made a serious attempt to catalog all the federal crimes in the world until this young lawyer looking back said, I have an idea, man. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it one fact pattern at a time. I'm going to do it on Twitter. I'm going to do it anonymously. And here's the brilliant part, because like William French Smith actually didn't have a sense of humor. Ken Starr, I spent many, many, many hours with him no sense of humor, like none, <laughs> like the least funny person ever. This guy said, I'm going to make it funny. I'm going to do fact patterns right out of the federal register. And damn it, it's going to be funny. And for every goddamn day since then, seven years without missing a day. Have you ever missed a day, Mike Chase? I've not missed a day in the UTC sense. Whoa. I, yeah. whoa, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm, have you missed a day in the time zone sense? So there was, there was a couple of occasions where I <laughs> tweeted before midnight Pacific time, but ensuring that by the time I returned to the East Coast, the next crime made it before midnight East Coast time. So, okay, so, day so, so, wait, so, so wait a second. If we believe in time zones, Crime a day has missed a day. But if we adopted my scheme <laughs> of universal time, crime a day has been perfect, right? There are two ways of looking at it. One, yes. Or two, if you ask the question, have I done a crime for every single day of the project? The answer is assuredly yes. Okay. Assuredly he yes. has never missed a day. Never missed a day. And that's an argument for universal time. <laughs> he has right. never missed a day for seven freaking years. Now, right. in the Bible, seven years is enough 
to get tricked by your father-in-law into marrying the wrong daughter, so you have to do another seven years. He's going to have to do another seven years. Actually, he's going to have to do a lot more than seven years. At the current rate, Mike yeah. Chase, when will you be done with well, the catalog that William French Smith attempted, gave up on because it was freaking boring and he had no sense of humor? Well, so... I mean, as a technical matter, assuming that no new crimes are added, I'll be done in February, sort of mid-February of the year 2848 is when I'll be wrapping up. Yeah. Um, okay. But that assumes so you, that everything stays the same. And by then you'll have a lot of wives. Um, <laughs> all right. I can hope. Um, I only hope, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, so Genevieve has an important continuation of this monologue with respect to a recent crime a day tweet. Oh boy. Okay. Yes. So five days ago, I became aware that my recently deceased grandfather-in-law, I think that's the correct way to say this, may have committed a federal crime. Oh, good. Oh, I love it. Yes. So according to 26 USC section 5687 and 27 CFR section 31.201A, it is a federal crime to refill a liquor bottle with different liquor than it had when it was originally filled. Yeah. So my question is for you as a crime a day expert, did he commit a federal crime? Because he was a man who believed in an evening cocktail as does the in lieu of fun audience. Mm -hmm. And for his entire life, he had a cocktail with his beloved wife. And when she was temporarily in the hospital, he wanted to make sure she had her cocktail of the evening. And so he took an empty gin bottle and filled it with white wine, which was her beverage of choice. And so now the question I pose to you is this, is wine a liquor for purposes of this potential crime? Because where I'm sitting, it might violate the spirit of the law, but is it the letter uh, of the law? I think the key question <laughs> is here is what what, is, what was the statute? Twenty six USC. Yeah, yeah twenty six USC Title twenty six of the U.S. Code. So we are talking about taxation, of course. Yeah. Okay. Did, is wine a liquor? No. In the meaning of twenty six USC, whatever no. the hell. No, no, and in fact, as as. And the, the remark was, does it violate the spirit of the law? <laughs> and in fact, the law speaks specifically of distilled spirits. So no, wine is not oh. a distilled spirit. All so right. there would be no violation. Okay, so your he grandfather-in-law may be deceased, but he is not <laughs> a criminal. No, All right, let's talk about reason. Elton John not, not for, for a that minute. reason. There are probably many other <laughs> Let's talk about Elton John for a minute. Because Elton John wrote, it's like trying to find gold in a silver mine. It's like trying to drink whiskey from a bottle of wine. Right. Now, this raises a... It's the inverse question. It's putting the distilled spirit in the wine bottle. Does that violate uh, the, the statute? There's an exception if you're wearing a mohair suit and electric boots. <laughs> then everything's illegal. <laughs> then it's all right. Okay. So there are there's a lot of Elton John uh, threads in the law. So uh, no. So look, I mean, and there's a there's a further limitation to this law. But this is an area where where federal criminal law and federal you know, administrative crimes get really tricky, which is that the particular crime that we were just speaking about actually applies exclusively to folks who are selling or distributing uh, liquors. So if you run a liquor store and you're selling a refilled bottle of liquor, it's a crime. However, there's a separate section that makes it a federal crime for any person to possess, knowingly possess a bottle that has been refilled. And so that's where you end up getting into trouble. You might read this provision and say, I'm I'm clear um, because there's no violation here, but but once you possess knowingly possess a refilled bottle of liquor, it's a federal crime. All right, but how would I know? <laughs> if I take the bottle of gin that I used, yeah, in order to make this aviation, and mm -hmm. I poured whiskey into it, yeah, without more, is that alone a crime for personal use? For personal use, it probably it probably isn't, 
Although I think an enterprising prosecutor could actually probably find that you're in your 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 packaging for resale uh, illegally made mixed cocktail drinks. Um, and and certainly, you know, look, a jury can decide whether you planned this is an inchoate crime. Maybe you were planning to distribute it. But certainly I think that's enough evidence to show attempted sale of some sort of noxious, you know, mixed cocktail, uh, whether it's an aviation or whatever. Yeah. So we are not allowed to have fun anymore. It's true. But we are allowed to have Mike Chase back seven years seven years running the crime a day not seven years since you outed yourself it's been a great the great day that he outed himself because he's actually a funny guy um and it's good to be able to like have a conversation with him he used to only be an occasional dm um and it was like a cool thing when you would get like a a a retweet from a crime a day with a federal statute attached. It was like this mysterious cool thing that would happen. Um, now he's like demystified himself. Um, uh, but he's here with us today. He's taking your questions. If you have a fact pattern that you think might be a crime, ask him. It is legal advice. And he is bound uh, by the bar to give you accurate information. However, um, nothing in this conversation will ensure confidentiality. I will remind the audience we are live there streaming. There is an audience. <laughs> <laughs> there may be some sort of a joint defense privilege, you know. Genevieve and I, of course, are yeah, covered yeah. by Section 230. Yeah. Mike is covered by the rules of the Connecticut Bar. Uh, the floor. <laughs> um, well, uh, where are we going from here? That aviation went straight to my head. Oh, wow. All right. Okay. So this has gone off the rails. Somebody's going to have to Are, take are there the any good so. aviation crimes? Oh, there. Oh my God. There are so many good. The FAA has pumped out so many regulations with criminal and <laughs> criminal penalties that it's just, it's one of the best areas. Well, I mean, you can't go skydiving right now. It's a federal crime to go skydiving drunk. Okay. So, you know, or, or in, under That's the influence of alcohol. That's reasonable. <laughs> Can I why why <laughs> just safety well, well, or yeah well yeah i think safety is yeah probably <laughs> the main concern here here's my favorite aviation crime federal crime to uh for a skydiver to parachute with a, a a parachute that has been packed by a foreigner a non-us citizen unless the person that is using the parachute is also a non-us citizen so there's like a specific carve out in the federal law that says like, look, we don't want any Americans using foreign packed parachutes, but like foreigners, you can, you know, you, you can use a foreign packed parachute in the United so States. So Kate Klonick is right now at an airport. Uh, what oh, okay. perfectly normal behavior should she avoid because it would be a crime because she's at an airport? The Alec Baldwin offenses, right? Like if she's playing words with friends, she's gonna have to like put that phone away when uh, the plane is getting ready to take off because interfering with a uh, a flight attendant is, is a federal crime. Uh, there are certain sized uh, torpedoes that are a crime to bring on an airplane. Um, if it's should under- I, Should I, I think... tell you my funny story about the FAA? It, does it involve torpedoes or is it just the it FAA It actually doesn't general? involve criminal law, but it oh, okay, does yeah. involve sure. FAA regulation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so. In the early days of lawfare, when it was young and uh, intrepid and amusing and we would do eccentric things, we decided to have what we called the Lawfare Drone Smackdown. And the Lawfare Drone Smackdown uh, arose because my friend Alice, who is a, um, uh, a deep state operative, uh, Alice, uh, uh, told me she was thinking of building a drone and I told her that I was thinking of building a drone and she told me that her drone could beat up my drone and I told her, <laughs> no, it can't. My drone can kick your drone's ass. And before we knew it, we had a bet that we could each build a drone that could kick the other drone's ass. And so we decided to open this combat up to the broader lawfare community and hence the lawfare drone <laughs> smackdown was born. Uh, and I won't tell the full story of the Lawfare Drone Smackdown, which was won by my children who cyber attacked the other drones in the Drone Smackdown. 
Um, but uh, <laughs> you can find that in, in on Lawfare in a, a post called Operation Stucks to Be You. Um, but um, uh, shortly before the Lawfare drone smackdown, which we had advertised on Lawfare, was going to take place at a park in Washington, D.C., and all the entry drones were going to have uh, single combat with one another until only one drone remained, I got a call from the Federal <laughs> Aviation Administration. I'm not making this did. up. I bet um, you did. <laughs> which called to advise me that the D.C. Uh, area was a no-fly zone. Restricted airspace. Oh, to yeah. drones. Uh, including Rinky Dink Radio Shack toys, uh, as it turned out, and um, uh, so um, uh, uh, they inf I, I told them that we were uh, only going to fly within a ridiculously small uh, uh, area, and they informed me that this would uh, still violate. Uh, the federal <laughs> aviation uh, rules. And so we removed the uh, Lawfare drone smackdown as is, and you can look at this on Lawfare. We've docu we documented the whole thing uh, to a undisclosed location, which oh. we have never, never disclosed where it was. <laughs> All the entries in the Lawfare drone smackdown took place. It was outside the D.C. restricted airspace. Gosh, wow. uh, it wasn't very far outside the D.C. restricted airspace. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was my experience. They were very earnest. They were very uh, they were very kind of adorable and, and frankly, um, a little abashed at the ridiculousness of their position because we were talking about, you know, uh, toys purchased from, uh, uh, you know, Brookstone and Radio Shack and that sort of thing. Um, but they, uh, yeah, they, they earnestly informed us that the Lawfare Drone Smackdown was illegal. What year was that? want to say 2012, 13. Um, because you may recall an instance in which a, uh, a postal worker decided that he wanted to deliver some some letters, letters to Congress saying that he wanted to get money out of politics. Uh, and he flew a gyrocopter from Florida to land on the lawn outside of the Capitol. And uh, he was originally charged with violation you know, of restricted airspace, entering restricted airspace. That was the only charge. And I was, this is the early days of crime a day, like very early days of crime a day. And the early footage from like, MSNBC shows so you use a telescopic lens and it's showing this gyrocopter crashed or something landed on the Capitol lawn surrounded by you know the ATF and they're like diffused <laughs> making sure sweeping it for explosives but I noticed uh, that on the tail fin of this gyrocopter he had affixed the US Postal Service logo and so crime a day tweeted Good out thing that he didn't include Smokey the bear well though, thank God for him right and so I tweeted out, Crime A Day tweeted out that it's a federal crime to falsely label any vehicle as a postal vehicle. And, oh, no. and like two weeks later, they superseded the indictment with that charge. And there's like <laughs> never been like, <laughs> my case made an appearance as a defense lawyer. I feel I feel horrible because I still live with the guilt that maybe they would never have charged him with falsely labeling a mail vehicle. Uh, unless I had pointed it out, I think I think that the prosecutor must follow crime day. So I feel bad about that. That was uh, that was uh, that was a misstep in the history of crime day. So I'll never do that again. Just speaking of aviation crimes, though, do we think that there's going to be an expanse and a push out on your timeline of reporting all the federal crimes because of all the behaviors that are now going on in like flights? They've had so many more. Um, how do I phrase this? violent outbursts on planes oh these days that are they make for great tv and youtube clips but horrible travel circumstances and yeah, dangerous right. ones no it's so. definitely it's definitely going to happen and um you know right now what you end up having is these violent dust-ups which are like really plainly within the law and, and federal crimes and i mean there's no joke you're going to get 
you're going to get uh, arrested for those and you're going to get prosecuted for those. The, the, the trickier thing is that a lot of airports have started to shut down airport bars because of this and for other reasons for, for, you know, for, for COVID and et cetera. And so increasing numbers of folks are trying to bring their own liquor onto airplanes. Tricky. The funny thing about it is that there is a federal regulation that prohibits drinking your own alcohol on an airplane. There's a, it's just in the CFR, it says that you cannot, you can bring your alcohol on, get it at the duty-free shop or whatever. No such rule on Amtrak, by the way. I brought a <laughs> bottle of Aberlauer on Amtrak and I drank a fair bit of it. It was fine. Well, I, I'm here to tell you that you're only violating the CFR if you drink your own liquor on, on an airplane. There's actually no criminal penalty applied to that particular regulatory violation. So well, thank God for that. Yeah, right. So, so I guess the FAA could commence like some sort of administrative action against you, which would just be hilarious. I mean, to have like a, like a civil administrative, you're going to go before an ALJ and they're going to like find you guilty of consuming your own lawfully owned liquor on an airplane. I, I think that'd be good, but yeah, no, you're definitely going to see an increase in, in assault on a, on a flight attendant to uh, uh, crimes a lot. Yeah. That's wild to me because I don't think of like the duty free thing as like my own liquor. I think of it as what I purchased within the airport. So I imagine there are many people who have violated this federal oh, yeah. law. Oh, sure. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm thinking of like a bathtub gin that I've distilled myself and I was like, hey, I'm going to give Yeah, this no, out. no moonshine on hey, airplanes. Some either. flights I've been on have been long enough to distill your own gin. That's yeah. true. I and wouldn't recommend doing the... like toilet gin though. Like that yeah. toilet is not accommodating that. Yeah. I've also been All on right. flights where there's definitely somebody in there that's been in the bathroom long enough that they could have distilled their own gin. <laughs> that it's fermenting. Yeah, that's good. Yes. Yeah. So, so key crime a day history questions. Yeah. Since we've been through the seven year. Sure. Um, so um, how did you have the idea that crime a day should be funny? Rat, this is a serious question. Yeah. Because, like, all right, there is the idea that the crime of day should document the truly awesome reach of U.S. federal criminal law. Mm -hmm. That's an idea. And that's a point that the crime of day has made, I, I, I think, just by existing and also by using the fact patterns suggested by the Code of Federal Regulations. But the idea that it should be funny mm -hmm. is, a, is actually like a complicated proposition and uh, a non-obvious one. Like it's, I think it's obvious to people who've just kind of read Crime A Day and have kind of like follow it that there's something funny about this, but like as an original matter, if I were thinking about like when William French Smith was thinking, we need to document how extensive the federal criminal code is and how it impinges on our liberties with right. things that no reasonable person could possibly be expected <laughs> to like, there's nothing funny about this. No. Um, how well. did, well, except like me trying to be jolly and stuff, like how did you have the idea that this was comic material? I mean, so, I mean, like sort of the original impetus before the Crime of Day pro project ever began, right? I mean, I remember writing a sentencing memorandum for a client who, this is back when I spent most of my days attacking uh, 2B 1.1 of the federal sentencing guidelines, which are the fraud guidelines, which were had these immensely ratcheted up penalties that had been constantly getting piled on to the point where you know people were trying to rectify the fact that there was a perception that white collar criminals were getting sentenced to tiny, tiny sentences. What was ending up happening was people that were getting convicted of you know fraud crimes, but were not like board directors. They were not like anybody in a position of trust. They were just committing essentially like high dollar loss consumer fraud cases. They were getting absolutely slammed by these ratcheted up violations. And so I remember pointing out to a judge at a sentencing hearing, I said, you know, this is one of the earliest sentences I had, maybe my third federal sentencing that I ever had or something like that. And I said to the judge, you know, judge, I just want to point out that if, if, the, if my client had actually stolen this amount of money 
uh, at gunpoint from a child uh, within 250 feet of a school, he would have gotten sentenced to less time under the guidelines. It would have recommended less time. And so my view, my view there was, look, this judge thinks this is hilarious. Uh, the judge really perked up there because of the absurdity of it. And I said, well, what else is absurd about the federal criminal code? And that's, that was really the very, very beginning. But, but I mean, the more fundamental piece of it was, I think mockery, like mockery, is the best way to point out the absurdity of a position, a longstanding position that the government has taken. And what better way to mock somebody than using like explicitly their own words, like just their own words. And so for me, that was that was really the, 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 the seed from which the comedic endeavor began. That's super interesting. I mean, I, I'm reminded of my late former boss slash briefly mentor, Meg Greenfield, who once memorably said to me, Ben, there's no greater disservice you can do a man than to quote him. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. Don't mind me. I'm just bringing people in. Yeah, well, no problem. I, I that think now, nice. that we've, now that we've seen Paula, we should probably hear from her. All right. Hey, Paul. Hi. Okay. So my question is, is how do you not get overwhelmed by the depth or breadth of it? Or how did you overcome that? Because I had to write an essay about whether the place of solicitation included the White House residence. And I wanted to cry. Like I would question the word and when I read it, like does yeah. and really mean and? And I don't know. <laughs> how, I mean, lawyers, I mean, Ben, how you guys deal with that? Because it's it's quite overwhelming. So wait, before Mike answers that, tell us about how you came to be writing an essay on this question. Um, it was for an American presidency class, I think. And we were writing essays on crimes that American presidents might or may not have committed. And I think mine was, I think Clinton might have committed a crime by fundraising from the White House, if I'm correct. And so I decided to focus on whether or not the White House residents would count as part of a place of solicitation um, violation, because I think Jimmy Carter had had a fundraiser in the residence. And I think the DOJ had decided that it wouldn't count as a building of um, federal business because the you know, the president lives there and I don't think that would count as where he's doing his work. Um, and so that was what I tried to focus on because focusing on anything else was so complicated, like reading all of the opinions. I think I had to read like old opinions from like Mika. I'm going to forget his last name, Ben, you might know who I'm talking about. He was like, I think, legal counsel for the Clinton administration. Abner Mikva. Yes, there you go. <laughs> See? Um, and so the only distinction I could find was that the White House residents seemed to be treated differently than other parts of the White House. Yeah. That's yeah, so uh, it, it's a good question. How do you avoid getting overwhelmed by the list of things that are illegal or arguably illegal? Because that's the project. Right. The project is that it's the project is that it's overwhelming. Right. I mean, the whole point is like, the, like you like I've embraced the uh, the overwhelming because that's the whole point. And so, you know, so I, I will countless times right throughout the project. Seven years. That's a lot of crimes. You know, it's more than twenty five hundred crimes. People will say to me, oh, I think you've already done this one. And I say, I have not already done that one. I've done the other side of the or or I've done the other side of the and. Right. Or I've done the, you know, I've done the, uh, the third word in the series. Right. And, you know, there there are there are rules like we won't we don't have to get into all of them. There's things called like the last antecedent rule in construing a statute. You know, all of these things as you may be familiar with. They can they can change the way that a court could write a 30 page opinion on a single you know subsection of a statute. That that's how I don't get overwhelmed. But I also think it's amazing because, you know, Basically, my principle is, you know, you can look all over the law and they say, what is a crime? Part of my part of my whole feed, the thing that it generates the most controversy over is people don't agree what a crime is. They don't agree when something is a distinct crime. They don't agree 
when a violation of but the CFR becomes a crime. Mike, this is a frivolous dispute. I mean, this is a dispute on which you are right and your opponents are wrong. Thank you. You Thank can you. go to jail for right. this fact pattern. Yes, You correct. can be prosecuted and imprisoned. And when the government prosecutes you and imprisons you, and when a judge sentences you, the premise will be that you committed a crime. Correct. All of those facts are not in dispute. That's right. Right? That's right. No, like you're exactly your opponents right. do not contend that anything that I just said is wrong. No. And, no and in How fact, can they contend then that the, that the cheese crime that is the predicate for this conversation, you know, cottage cheese that's too runny or whatever, is not a crime because there's no statute that says it's correct that's a hundred percent of it It, you know there's no statute that says (laughs) if you beat somebody to death with a salami it's a crime there's merely a statute that says if you murder somebody right it's a crime you know normally speaking we don't lay out fact patterns in statutes what am i missing here well, no, I, I take it even one step further than that, though. I mean, you're exactly right. A great example is the Yates case, right? That got decided, you know, at the Supreme Court ultimately, which was a, a fisherman in Florida. He caught a couple of undersized grouper. He found out Fish and Wildlife Services were going to be checking people's fish when they got back to shore. So he threw his overboard. Well, there is no federal fish spoliation statute. And so they charged him with Sarbanes-Oxley document destruction. And they said, well, look, if you look at the Sarbanes-Oxley document destruction statute, it says any data, paper, record, or other tangible object. And they said, a fish is certainly a tangible object, so we're going to charge you with it. He got all the way to the Supreme Court. He had to have Kagan cite red fish, blue fish, one fish, two fish, or whatever from Dr. Seuss, all to be told that what he did wasn't a crime. He had a better argument there because the statute and there was no regulation saying, a fi- including a fish. Crime a day hews explicitly to, to, to plain language. In other words, I'm not going to say that it's a federal crime to, you know, uh, to, to destroy a boysenberry unless the regulation says boysenberry, right? I'm not going to just give an example that's not in there. So there are there are legion more examples of federal crimes than we, than I, I could even list but I hew to the, 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 the federal regulations. But I think it goes back to law schools. There are professors out there that affirmatively teach in administrative law that regulations cannot, that they can't create crimes. Ben, you're muted. Let me give a very tangible example, which I just shared in the uh, chat, uh, which is an article in The Atlantic by our friend Jonathan Rausch, Uh, involving a case uh, litigated uh, a number of years ago by my friend Miguel Estrada. Uh, Miguel is a prominent appellate lawyer, um, notably of a conservative disposition. Uh, This is a case of a Honduran man who spent many years in federal prison for uh, a small percentage of his lobstering boat containing um, uh, lobsters that were uh, too small and yep. egg-bearing. Um, and uh, the statute in question does not say you cannot import lobsters that are too small and egg-bearing. It says you can't import lobsters captured in violation of local law. Uh, for including foreign law. (laughs) Yes. So this is actually, uh, not only can U.S. domestic regulation define a crime, foreign regulation can define a crime. Um, And this person spent (laughs) years in federal prison. Uh, Now, some of us didn't think that was a good thing. Didn't, like, the case was extraordinary. But I believe it was, I can't remember if it was the Fifth or the Eighth Circuit that upheld the, 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 uh, the sentence. Um, Miguel lost that case. Um, and people like Jonathan Rausch were very upset about it. Yeah. Um, but it is, in fact, 
not an arguable proposition no, right. that regulation can define a crime. Or, or even sub-regulatory guidance. I mean, the thing about the McNabb case that is so actually remarkable, too, is there was affirmative proof put forward that the Honduran regulation that was purportedly violated had been repealed. It wasn't even current law. And so the, this person wasn't just wasn't just prosecuted for violation of, you know, via the Lacey Act, some violation of foreign law. It was right. a foreign, foreign law, law. Right. or Repealed defunct foreign, foreign law. law. Right. And so that's a problem. But you're, you're exactly right. It goes even further than that. Right. There's something that these national park superintendents put out called the superintendent's compendium. And it comes out like every year where they set like the rules of the park and they can like say everything from like, hey, look, a, a flotation device that you can use when you're going into the water, that that excludes uh, air mattress, right? And so that's how it becomes a federal crime to uh, float on an air mattress in a body of water in certain national parks. That doesn't. That's not even a reg. That's a superintendent that's right. publishing a PDF on the website. So I do want to say the percentage, so for everybody who's inclined to get really outraged about this, the percentage of federal prisoners who yep. are in prison over... Uh, these kind of picayune, non-statutory things is really small. One and a half percent, uh, yeah. About is one. it that that small? It's about I, one and a half to two percent. Yeah, it fluctuates, but that's, yeah, for violations of administrative law, essentially. We're yeah. not, like, the, the workhorse statutes are, like, people who are violating actual, you know, text of congressional yeah. enactment. And it's all guns and drugs and immigration crimes. That's right. that's the bolt. That's the line share. And so I don't want to overstate the importance of this stuff, except in one sense where I think it's really important, where the day the government decides that you are the problem, yeah, you have violated a federal statute of the, or yeah. a federal guidance. administrative <laughs> guidance that's enforceable criminally. I did it this morning, not even <laughs> sure what I did that counts, but like, like every day you go through life unknowingly violating federal rules that are potentially criminally enforceable. And, you know, we don't live in Putin land where the federal government has the has the mandate to go after you on that basis if you're politically unpopular. But we do have a lot of capacity to do that. Yeah. And so when you see these prosecutions of fairly exotic things, you have to ask the question, how did that come to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, we, we've certainly built a robust machinery for which that exact wrong that you've touched on could be implemented, right? In that, that sort of retaliatory um, selective prosecution. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that particularly gets me concerned is that a lot of these crimes are targeted at businesses and organizations and yeah. they're, they're meant to govern those entities. However, the scope of the liability of the officers in those entities is very nebulous. The board is its own different set of yeah. protections, but for particular officers and people serving in the company, it's really, I believe, at the pleasure of the prosecutor or whether or not they're sure. going to get prosecuted for that. Yeah, no, prosecutorial discretion is 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 a big exercise in trust. It's like the it's like the biggest trust fall that's going on in America right now is prosecutorial really? discretion. You know, I mean, the, the example that I posted today, just sort of on a, as a joke was there was this video that was published about this, you know, young girl, she's 13 years old, she's on a roller coaster or something, and right. she gets hit in the face with a seagull, right? Yep. Well, if she if that seagull died, that's incidental take under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, you know, <laughs> like she didn't have to have any intent whatsoever, and she could be, she could, that's a, you know, 16 USC 707, it's over, right? <laughs> Let's get I'm, I'm with the seagull. Yeah, me too. <laughs> The seagull was fine, I think. It flew off. So, yeah. Well, speaking of individual crimes, Richard, would you please um, ask your question? Uh, I am a crime. I no, admit it, no, so. no, no, no. <laughs> question. Um, so, um, this is kind of this is kind of a silly question, but it's also kind of uh, meta. It's sort of really about how you gather your material. You know, we have a lot of expressions, uh, silly expressions like fashion crimes and things like that. I'm wondering if you've actually encountered fashion crimes in oh, federal yeah. law and if there are other some of those other kind of expressions if you found those uh, as well i don't i can't 
things like fashion crimes. I can't think of other similar expressions, but I know they're out there. Oh yeah, no, no, there, there are absolutely fashion crimes. Like for, for example, if you're uh, riding a moped in Fort Gordon, you have to wear quote unquote long trousers uh, in order to ride a moped. Uh, so that, that, that's one. Uh, also, if you want to make a, if you want to like, uh, buy a wig, uh, that is made out of, uh, polyester fibers, um, uh, like an actual, like fake hair, that's fine. But if you actually want to get polyester hairs implanted into your scalp, that, you know, that's a federal crime. You can't go around with those. Uh, there, there's federal regulation that is criminally prosecutable, which actually specifies where the tag must be placed between the shoulders in a uh, any kind of wool garments. So yeah, there's plenty of fashion crimes uh, for sure. But no, they touch they touch on literally every aspect of human life. When I wrote my book, How to Become a Federal Criminal, I divided it up into chapters like mail, money, food, because what I wanted to do is show there's no aspect of your life that doesn't have a criminal penalty attached to some violation. So yeah, every every aspect, fashion, everything. Thank you, Richard. You know, one one person actually mentioned something in the uh, in the chat that I thought was interesting. Was I was joking about this incidental take uh, with a seagull hitting your face, and and somebody said seagulls are migratory. No, that's the beauty of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is that it it it, it the list of quote unquote migratory birds includes tons of birds that are not migratory, at, like even remotely. So uh, the question is not is it a migratory bird? It's is it a quote unquote migratory bird under federal law? Oh, it worked. Hi, Mateo. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, great, thanks. Um, did you have a preference for Whoa, which question? Where are you that you've got a totem pole in the background, <laughs> dude? I mean, you've got to guess. It's like your daily photos. <laughs> uh, you're in Vancouver. Mm -mm. Uh, campus of Stanford University, still. Oh. Mm. That's Mate interesting. Mateo, I really liked the question you posed in the chat. And also your um, other, you can ask another question if you'd like, whatever of the two you thought was better. Sure, I'll do the first one, but also first I'll do the one in the chat. Um, Mike, so I was wondering if doing this work has like infected the way that you just walk around and like experience the world. Like if you're, you, know, you see someone opening the door kind of weird and you're like, oh, uh, US code, something, something, something. Uh, has that been a weird thing for you? Has that made going around difficult? Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it is uh, sort of a curse because I, I, for whatever reason, my brain has latched on to the sort of visual structure of the code, and so it's a little Rain Man esque in that, like, I, you know, if I do see something, I kind of spatially know where it lives in the CFR, and I know where it lives in the U.S. Code. I know what the potential types of violations are. But I, if the question is, do I feel like? nervous about my own criminal liability. I feel far less nervous about my own criminal liability because it, it is what I think is the fundamental point of crime today, which is when everything's a crime, nothing is a crime, right? When you dilute the criminal code so much, enforcement is, is virtually impossible unless, the, the big question that's always been in my mind is, unless somebody in government gets really pissed off that I'm doing this project and says, like let's look at mike because then you know all of the all of the broad vague statutes come into play like they look at your bank account well were you depositing money under ten thousand dollars too frequently okay maybe that's structuring you know were you were you traveling across state lines with an unchucked ear of corn in the back seat of your car okay hey, well structuring now you... <laughs> is a serious crime stru stru yeah. structuring i i i beg to differ i i think structuring is not a serious crime oh but... <laughs> we gotta have so we gotta save this dispute for pugilism week because because i i'm a i'm a serious advocate of the anti-structuring laws yeah i i think structuring is a total joke i will love to have that discussion with you someday. Uh, it's a date. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. But yeah, no, I, I, my point is I'm not any less or more afraid. I'm just like a nerd all the time. Like that's the only, mm. like that's the big effect. But yeah, I certainly see crimes everywhere. That's for sure. Gotcha. And my other question is related to a personal project that I'm actually involved in right now. Uh, I'm, I have to research uh, the rules regarding uh, jury sequestration, oh, yeah. uh, where it came from, uh, and just any sort of literature on how that got there. Uh, so my question is, do you know anything about it, or sure. do you just have any um, 
advice for like obscure statutory research generally for a novice? Oh, well, so jury sequestration, I could, I could talk about, that could be a whole nother episode about how there's sequestration really? and then there's sequestration, right? There's, there's like the judge saying like, you are hereby sequestered, which is like mm -hmm. not even remotely sequestration. And then there's like, 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 you know, John Cusack movie sequestration, like we're putting you in a nondescript motel somewhere. And like, that's, that's also very different. But in terms of just general statutory research, I mean, there are great tools out there. I'm, you, anybody can email me anytime, Mike at crimeaday.com. If you want to, if you want to like reach out with uh, with anything, I can I can give you some of my tips and tricks about how to find oh, the, awesome. uh, Thank the you. dark corners of the code. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Mateo. Okay, and then we have Charles. Hold on, I might be muted. Once, uh, Hi, Charles. There you go. Hey, guys. So uh, I guess my question is, and, and you kind of touched on that with the with the drone case, but what's the funniest uh, like? Uh, or I guess most obscure federal crime that someone's ever actually been charged with. There, because uh, there's a whole bunch in the code that you know. Yes, it's never actually been used, but you know, either as a tack on or as a primary charge. Whichever. So the McNabb case is a good example, I think. Um, but that one is actually one that was a little more serious, right? I mean, you can obviously see the 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 the, the policy justification for it, right? You don't want to exploit fisheries, etc. But. Um, one of the most absurd examples, I think, is Bobby Unzer, you know, race car driver, was out snowmobiling and uh, there was a blizzard, right? And a blizzard kind of just came upon them and uh, Bobby Unzer and his, the person he was snowmobiling with got lost. They sort of got off track because it was whiteout conditions completely. And then they were just totally lost to the point where they were actually getting hypothermic. Their uh, snowmobiles broke down. They um, like like holed up in this little shed, and when they finally got rescued, the the people that rescued them said, "Hey, look, as a technical matter, you actually snowmobiled on across some federal wildlife preserves, and that's a uh, that's a federal <laughs> crime." And they were like, "Oh, <laughs> well, good thing we're alive and didn't die, right?" And they were like, "Yeah, so that is good, except." <laughs> you are being prosecuted for that. Oh and Bobby Unser was prosecuted and convicted for it. Um, was it so, jail time or just a fine? I can't remember if he, if he, I can't remember what the sentence is. I used to know. And, uh, and serious question, is, is that yeah. a, is that not, is there no C-enter requirement in that? No. So it's, it's just a strict liability offense? Yeah, no. So, so many of the federal misdemeanors, and I think it was a misdemeanor in this case, this is a federal misdemeanor, but a huge number of the federal misdemeanors, which never generally see the inside of a federal district courthouse, are strict liability. There's no center requirement whatsoever. That, that's why I and a lot of other people have advocated for a default mens rea for every federal criminal Yeah, statute. I mean, that's really crazy. I yeah. don't think mm -hmm. you should query whether should it should be ever possible accidentally to commit a crime. Yeah, it, it, it should not be. And, and, and look, this may not be popular, but one of the people who've written most about this is, is Justice Gorsuch. You know, he's written about this 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 extensively and, and you know, maybe maybe one of the most, you know, sort of coherent bodies of, of discussion on that issue, so. And kind of just as a quick follow-up to Charles's question, um, Susan had asked and she wanted to be asked for her what, like if there was a percentage that you're aware of of the written law is obsolete or purposely neglected? Oh, I mean, it's it's well in excess of 95 percent. Right. I mean, that's inter like like I mean, I guess I guess I don't maybe maybe I don't understand the question. But I mean, in terms of the criminal criminally punishable provisions that are actually utilized or ever prosecuted. Yeah, it's well below. Yeah. That but then. But the utilization is distinct from it still being valid. So at yeah, any time, sure. yeah. again, back to prosecutorial discretion, sure. someone could decide, hey, this works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I talked last time I was on here about the Greenpeace case, right? I mean, is this old, this old pirate statute that ended up getting yes. used, you know, after a hundred years had passed. There's a lot of examples like that where there is a technically a statute that fits and then it gets dusted off and, and used hundreds of years later. It does happen. Yeah. Love for some stuff to be sunsetted. But here's mm -hmm. Daniel. Oh, yeah. Hey, Daniel. Hello. Hey. So my question is, are there any obscure cheese crimes? No, there's. I don't think, I'm not aware of any cheese crimes. I don't think. Oh, wait, actually, you know what? I do know every cheese crime that's ever been written. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> there are countless, right? Like, so this is this project is literally how I learned that uh, that the holes in Swiss cheese are called eyes, and that cheese without eyes is actually called blind cheese, and it's a federal crime to sell blind cheese, except if it's being used for manufacturing purposes. So that's one thing to remember about Swiss cheese. My favorite cheese crime, and Ben knows this, I think everybody knows this, that is it a federal crime to sell grated cream cheese. Uh, and <laughs> Ben, we're both muted, so I don't. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> this is the best crime of yeah, all it's time my, in all subjects. It, it's my favorite crime because, like, it's explicitly carved out in the code that 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 the standard of identity for grated cheese may not include cream cheese, and like in my book, I have a couple of ideations about how you might even manufacture grated cream cheese and whether it would look distinct from regular cream cheese or not, or whether you would end up just making a mess of your cheese grater. I don't know, but it does remain the fact that if somebody manages to sell federal, uh, to sell grated cream cheese, uh, then they're going to be in, in some hot water. So. I wonder how that would affect cheesecake. <laughs> well, <laughs> it'd still be delicious. Yeah, hopefully. All right. And we have another question and hopefully this is working. Did it? I don't know if it did. Okay. We have a question from the Big Blue Blogger who's been absent for a long time. Welcome back, Big Blue Blogger. I don't think he saw the prompt yet. Mm. Well, we'll have to go to somebody else. Okay. Uh, so here's my question in the meantime. You know, you only have a few more hundred years before yeah. this project is done. 820, yeah. Yeah, what comes <laughs> next? State crimes. Uh, right, as, soon as, as soon as I tweet the last federal crime, I'm going to state crimes. But, yeah. but and then know, there are code. other federal crimes always being created and new fact patterns being implemented yeah. through regulation. How do you mean in the you know, over the next 820 years to handle the backlog that gets created? Are you going to go back and and deal with that? I, I've most I've been tacking those on to the end. I'll, I'll just take care of those at the end. Um, although sometimes I Have bump them up to the Have you done a calculation of, of how much additional time they will yeah. require? Yeah, so I, I, I have, and it does fluctuate greatly. During the Trump administration, there were so there was so little regulatory activity actually and that 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 federal regulatory crimes were not created although although you know he did he did create a federal crime of possessing or buying or selling a bump stock right for example through regulatory action right so th there were there were examples um, but there was there was a very slowed portion of regulatory growth there. But there were but there you, were but, statutory. But, but were there you know in the famed Trump regulatory rollback that he talked yeah. about were, were were crimes eliminated? No, in in, in fact, no, and, and in fact, I think some were very minimal. In in my research, I found most of the the regulatory crimes that were claimed to have been eliminated. I found reorganized and moved elsewhere within the federal code. In other words, there would be like. Like, like the argument was that like, oh, we eliminated like all these federal crimes. Well, there used to be a subsection that contained six crimes and a subsection that contained two crimes. Now there was one subsection that contained like 15 crimes. A great example was, and I was heartbroken when I, my book was about to get published. One of my favorite crimes is that it's a federal crime to whistle on a CB radio. Okay. <laughs> and like, like so that should be a crime. It's, right. And it's a federal crime to tell jokes on a CB radio. It's a federal crime to make sound effects. Michael Winslow retweeted that. That was like my, my favorite day was that like Michael Winslow retweeted it. But um, no, but who the, the, still uses CB radios? Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I want to like, say like, like the 70s are a long time ago. Yeah, I used one probably last. I used one in the late 90s. But yeah, I bought it from Radio Shack. Somebody says, what is a CB radio? Citizens Band Radio. Yeah. Um, pa Paula is like eight years old. Um, 
But you know, it's it's all right. She's going to law school this year, but you know, you can't expect her to know what a CB radio is. They're great. They're like a walkie-talkie on steroids. It's like where the ten codes came from. Like you know, like like breaker breaker one nine, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. that's CB radio. Ten four. Ten four. Good buddy. Good buddy. Yeah. 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 I got a code Kojak with a Kodak. Right. That means I've got a cop with a speed gun. Anyway, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But uh, uh, the 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 great thing about this was that like. They claimed it was eliminated, but then I just found it moved over to another section with like all these CB radio crimes. And so I, I have found that many of them did not vanish. They just moved around a lot. So I don't think there's been meaningful rollback. I wonder if they will tr- try to put those on another area. That would be really interesting. Um, so I'm going to ask the big blue bloggers question because we're having a little technical difficulty. Sure. Wouldn't be a show without it. Um, so he says, do you have any opinion on Tom Barrick and whether he's just a poor, innocent billionaire persecuted for having friends even richer than he is? <laughs> I, I don't. And I find like I sort of find remind me, what, what is the is he actually charged at this point or is he just. Yeah, he the, the indictment came so. down this week. It's nearly 50 pages. Yeah. And it includes, um, I think, pretty astonishing allegations of him. Uh, taking direction from the UAE right. about what material to get into presidential candidate speeches, yeah. doing it. Um, this is extraordinary behavior. Um, and yeah. it does, you know, it's a good rule of thumb that if your indictment is more than 40 pages, oh, it, it's um, like what. what that's actually an interesting what's the number of pages that if your indictment exceeds as a defense lawyer you're like oh my god my client is fucked well (laughs) i mean sometimes a wicked long indictment shows that you've you've got like a really bad prosecutor actually like they're like and, and like sometimes that can even be better um but i would say any indictment over half a page is really really bad for the client like extremely bad like Unless because it's a no, very well written half page. <laughs> I mean, as, as everybody knows, and, and and as everybody knows, there's this thing, and we've been talking about it a lot lately. This this acquitted conduct sentencing issue. It's a really big issue, and we, you know, I've written cert petitions to the Supreme Court on this issue. Is that is that like if you get caught on one offense, remember one offense in a ten count indictment, a hundred count indictment, whatever, one offense, the judge can still even if the jury acquits you on every other charge. The judge can take those into consideration as relevant conduct at sentencing. If the judge finds by a preponderance of the evidence that you did those things. Yeah, but I want to I want to dwell on indictment length sure. for a minute because yeah. in my experience as a as a journalist covering yeah. cases, there's like the 12-page indictment. And the 12 pages indictment means they've scraped by and they have some they've got you on something and it's you know, they've got one or two counts, and one of yeah. them's a false statements count, by the way, because yeah. there's always a false And one's a forfeiture count. allegation, which, right, yeah. right. And yeah, so, right. you know, there's yeah. some bad stuff. You did some bad stuff. You're going to plead out. But, you know, as a journalist, when you see a 12, 15-page indictment, you're like, okay, they've got some shit. And then there's, like, when you see a 50-page indictment yeah. with 10 counts. I'm just making up numbers here. You're like, they're making a statement here. And I agree with you that sometimes the super long indictment says we're throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. But there's also the 50 count, 50 page page churning indictment that you're like, oh, my God, he did this and he did this. And those are like, you know, when 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 a serious prosecutor's office comes out with you know, a lot of pages there, there's actually value in just the volume. Yeah, I would, I would say that's true. You know, obviously there are surplus issues that like, you know, if you're really vigorously, you know, defending, you're going to want to attack. But I will say that if you've got a 50 page count indictment, a 50 count indictment or a 50 page indictment, rather either one, if you're quoting documents, right, actual emails or whatever, and there's explicit language in there and you look at it and you say, every element of the offense is met in this email. If this email was in fact written, the crime has been committed. That's Mm -hmm. devastating. There's another flavor of indictment, though, that is long for long's sake, 
where you have 50, you know, instances, there, it's 50 counts, but every single one of them is a phone call, right? Every count is a phone call. If the government still can't prove materiality, right, that these, these misrepresentations or omissions were material, right, the whole thing can vanish, right, on a motion to dismiss or, or you know, that, that can happen. That's not the most common situation, but I will just say that, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's crammed full of a lot of stuff. I say always look for if the bulk of the indictment is made up by just the statutory language, it, it, it is it is probably not as strong as if there is a very strong explicit set of documents in quotation marks and those things inside those quotation marks meet every element of the offense. That's a much stronger indictment. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it there on that cheerful note. Mike Chase, thank you so much for coming on today. Anytime. You're a great American, a terrible criminal. <laughs> you're showing all showing all your tricks oh my to the world every day. <laughs> Bring on year eight. Very excited. I will. Yeah. I can't I'll wait to ya. find out what crimes that I've committed unknowingly. <laughs> we will be back 23 hours from now, exactly on the dot. Uh, tomorrow is cheese night. So hopefully we'll, we will not commit any cheese crimes. I will not grate any cream cheese. <laughs> and try I'm bringing it. grated cream cheese. You should try it. You got to try it. I, I am yeah. totally bringing grated cream cheese to cheese night tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Everyone have a wonderful Thursday. Thank you again, Mike.